0: Hey folks, this is John Lawrence with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. In this episode, I caught up with Dr. Christine Hine to talk about healthcare provider wellness. Dr. Hine completed medical school at Dartmouth in 2001, followed by her residency in emergency medicine at Maine Medical Center, where she was a chief resident in her final year. She currently serves as the associate medical director for the Department of Emergency Medicine, and the Director of Provider Wellbeing and Peer Support at Maine Medical Center, Maine's only level one trauma center. She's also the Director of Emergency Medicine for all of Maine Health. Dr. Hine is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Tufts University's School of Medicine and is well respected as a medical educator, receiving in 2009 the American College of Emergency Physicians National Teacher of the Year Award. Her research interests include burnout, resiliency, critical care, and women's issues in medicine. Outside of work, Dr. Hine is married, has five children, and is an avid marathoner, completing over 23 marathons, including numerous competitive times in the Boston Marathon. All right, folks, this is a big episode. It's just over an hour long, but before you immediately click over to Spotify, I encourage you to give it a listen. Do yourself or maybe your colleagues a favor. Give the show a run through. Split it up if you need to. We cover so much here that might be helpful to you or someone else in your work or personal life. Wellness is a central theme to all of our careers. You may not have thought about it much, but it really affects everything we do. Dr. Hine and I touch on everything from peer support programs to coping with extremely challenging cases in emergency medicine and anesthesia. We talk about how to make it through med school or nursing school all the way through to transitioning out of practice and into retirement. We touch on eliminating the stigma around substance abuse, diversion, and suicidal ideation. Did you know that three to four hundred physicians kill themselves every year in the United States? That's about two medical school classes every year lost to suicide. We talk about how to get help in offering help to your colleagues so that we can collectively build a healthy and strong medical community. So check it out and let me know your thoughts. Be sure to check out the show notes on the website. I've got links to an incredible TED talk on redefining addiction, as well as links to books, journal articles, and lots of other resources that touch on wellness. And with that, I take you to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. And we have a very special guest, Dr. Hines' daughter, Abby, is with us today. So Abby, say hi. Hi. Oh, that's awesome. And so she's here to listen to our podcast on provider wellness today. But I wanted Abby to tell everybody a little bit about your summer camp experience. You went to a summer camp on surgery? Yes. Okay, tell, tell everyone first, what grade are you in?
1: I'm going into eighth grade.
0: You're going into eighth grade, okay. Now tell us all about surgery camp.
1: Um, it was at a college right outside of Boston, and it focused on a lot of different like um, subspecialties each day, and we got to do different dissections and mock surgeries. Um, So like one day, you got to choose to do a surgery on a fetal pig, and then another day you did a simulation as intubating a mannequin and different things like that.
0: That's awesome. Your mom showed me awesome photos of you (laughs) intubating the mannequin. You looked very calm, (laughs) very poised. That's very important. How, how How did you find the surgery camp? What got you interested in going to that kind of camp for summer?
1: Um, Well, I've always been interested in being a doctor, and recently I've been interested in surgery. And so I was looking at different camps in Boston, and this one just seemed really interesting.
0: That's awesome. Well, I wish you the best in your (laughs) future career as a doctor. That's so exciting. I was chatting before we hit record, just so other folks can hear that maybe someday I'll have the opportunity to work with Abby uh, in the operating room. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be a team together. And m- who knows, maybe to be one of your mom's patients. We never know.
1: <laughs> Full right. circle.
0: That's right. Well, we are going to talk about uh, provider wellness and uh, well-being and the peer support program here at Maine Med. So, Dr. Hind, you're the director of the program yes. of yes. provider well-being and peer support at MMC. So tell us a little bit about the structure of that program mm-hmm. and a little bit about the history of the program.
1: Well, it's interesting because it was a little bit like putting the cart before the horse. Um, We had the peer support program before we had the provider well-being program. Uh, Approximately three years ago, we launched the peer support program and that followed about an 18-month time period of planning for that, where we had the immense pleasure and opportunity of meeting with Joe Shapiro who's a national leader on this topic. Um, She's a um, otolaryngologist at the Brigham, and she was kind enough to uh, share her time with us and her experience in developing a program at the Brigham in 2008. Um, So she has quite a bit of experience with that, and since then she's helped other like-minded institutions develop their own programs. So there was a group of us who uh, traveled to Boston, um, picked her brain on the topic, and came up with what we thought would be a reasonable program or scope of program for a main medical center. And we launched that in August of 2014. And out of that came the understanding that there was really kind of a greater need for a more broadly reaching and upstream program, such as the Provider well-being Program. So um, that, we really just formed an officially kind of rolled out in October of 2016. So wow. it's very new. Wow. yeah.
0: So what does the program look like? What, what does it entail? There's a peer support component mm-hmm. of it, and yep. there's
1: yep. the provider other wellbeing. elements. So the, the peer support program, we have approximately 40 trained volunteers um, who have been identified either through their own interests or through their colleagues and peers who have um, promoted them as somebody who would really be excellent in this role. Um, They cross all disciplines and specialties, so we have residents, we have advanced practice providers, we have attending physicians, um, and again from all different departments um, throughout the hospital. Uh, We don't have uh, specifically medical students who are trained in our program because there is a medical student program in the GME office. Um, And we uh, reach out to anybody who's identified to us um, in a time of need, and that might be through um, a colleague or a concerned uh, peer, or it could be an individual who refers himself to the program, um, as well as people who are going through stressful experiences such as legal cases or cases that have been elevated to kind of a higher level of re- review. Um, we don't have any Uh, direct connection to our um, Department of Risk but we do uh, have them refer people to us and they tell the individuals you know we think you might benefit from this program It's available to every member of the medical staff and um, they're going to contact you there's no obligation it's completely confidential um, we don't take any notes. We're not there to review a process or review a case or an outcome. We're really there to provide um, support to each other as individuals as we, right. you know, work through professional and personal difficulties.
0: And so specifically, the peer support program is, it it functions as a as a phone call, as a as a yep. sit down yep. chit chat over coffee or how? It
1: can be all of it. Um, so we really first of all, want to capture as many people as we can because a lot of people don't understand the power of that interaction Um, until you've had a conversation that's really had that type of impact on you. You might think, well, it's just, I'm just talking to somebody for a half hour. So how much help is that going to be? And in our busy worlds, it can be challenging to carve out the time for that. So we've tried to create a framework where it's very low key, low maintenance. We reach out to people and we offer hey, do you want to just talk on the phone? Would you like to get together? Some people you know, know exactly what they want, and they want to sit down, and they want to talk for an hour and a half, and they want to talk again and again. Some people are looking for more of a mentor relationship, and while our peer support program isn't meant to be a mentor program, we absolutely have resources to support that. Um, and it kind of depends. I, I think about burnout in two different categories. There's an acute event, or there's more of a chronic Um, component to it and so for people who are experiencing an acutely stressful event it can be different what they need versus somebody who refers themselves to the program and says I think I kind of need just someone to talk to or somebody who's been through this are there people who have been through this right so um, you know our level of support that we provide can vary based on what an individual needs
0: that's great and so that's kind of an overview the peer support aspect what happens on the provider wellness end of things? What does that program look like?
1: So the provider wellness program is currently being developed. Um, We have a steering committee of sorts, which is the Provider Health and Resiliency Committee, um, made up of many different individuals across the organization. Um, We have an ethicist on our committee, we have members from spiritual care, we have physicians, we have residents, we have advanced practice providers, and and they're functioning as kind of the uh, committee where we can come up with ideas and initiatives that we want to focus on, vet it, hear different perspectives on how this might or might not be helpful, and then move forward. Um, so some of the things that we've been working on specifically are meant to increase organizational um, well-being efforts, so we've developed a brown bag lunch series. Um, which has been absolutely fabulous. And mm-hmm. I have to say my feedback after attending the third Brown Bag Lunch Series was that each one is an hour long, and those were like the three best hours I had had in the three previous months. Oh
0: wow, um, so, what, so what goes on at the Brown Bag <laughs> Lunch Series? So
1: we have tapped um, different providers uh, who have an area of interest that they wanna talk about and we advertise it um and it's generally kind of a smaller group anywhere from 15 to 30 people people you would never probably run into in your daily interaction yeah that's interesting um and we try we held it in the first one in the med staff lounge we had 28 people attend the first one with like 10 days of advance notice so we considered that a pretty big success um and during that time we had other people coming into the lounge who were just there for lunch and they sat down and partook in it Um, people who were working on charts who you could see were kind of listening with one ear and that was led by virginia Eddy, who's one of our trauma surgeons and she was talking about um the joy and awe in medicine and she basically just asked three questions over the course of an hour it was why did you even want to go into medicine yeah you know how when was your last joyful moment and everybody got a chance to talk about these things and yeah. to hear all these people in the room, what they do, why they wanted to do it, and where they find their sources of joy Right. was very much you know fulfilling for yourself of, oh, when was my last moment of joy? And if it was too long ago, I need to check myself. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then the last question was really, how do you protect that with all of the stresses? Oh, that's interesting. So that was our first Brown Bag Lunch series. And then our second one, um, Robin Ostrander uh, led a series on um, surviving patient suicide, mm. which during the course of the hour morphed into surviving patient death as well. So right. for those in the room who had lost patients, but never you know, experienced a patient who had committed suicide. Um, And then the third one was uh, Dr. Nate Mick, who's one of the emergency physicians here at Maine Med, had um, led a session on lateral violence in healthcare, Mm -hmm. professionalism, and emotional intelligence. A lot to discuss. Pretty
0: solid content. Yeah,
1: so we have a whole lineup um, scheduled for the year. We took a little summer hiatus. Um, Dr. D'Angelo, one of our neurosurgeons, led a session on the senior physician and um, things that you can consider to really maintain the joy in your practice and, and um, how to maybe adapt to different challenges or different uh, phases of life that you might be Right, I, w- I was
0: able to, to attend his and, and I work with him closely in the operating room. And, uh-huh. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, I think that conversation and uh, you presented recently mm-hmm. on provider wellness at Maine Medical Center, so some of those links, um, for me, inspired this conversation that uh-huh. we're having today. But it was interesting to go listen to Dr. D'Angelo. He's he's a he's a nearing retirement neurosurgeon, uh-huh. and uh-huh. he's you know, as you know, exploring what does it mean to age gracefully as a physician. Everything from, he's his talk kind of focused on the uh, neurocognitive elements of how do you know when you're experiencing the decline that's uh-huh. normal to all aging people, but how do you do that when you're Working on an aneurysm in someone's brain, right? And kind of stuff, but right. it, it's interesting because he's such a happy guy.
1: Yeah, he's yeah. such just
0: a buoyant, yeah. pleasurable person to be around. Yeah, and so it was fascinating to kind of pick his brain and to hear his talk on how how do you make it to that point in your career yeah. where you're still happy, yeah. where you still have. As you just mentioned, there's joyous moments in your practice. Well,
1: he may not know that. He probably doesn't know this, but he will if he listens to this podcast. <laughs> so yesterday I was working clinically, and one of our interns, who is approximately three weeks into residency, um, had the pleasure of speaking with him on the phone. I didn't preface it at all with, oh, he's great. You're going to love talking. Nothing, nothing, not a word. I didn't know you know, who she was going to be talking to. She got off the phone, and she said, that is one of the nicest people i've spoken with yes. and she had such a great interaction with him it put a smile on her face it was a simple phone call she right that simple question he had an excellent answer it was wonderful right know? and he's how many years into doing this and he's still able to create that sort of relationship with somebody
0: right right so and he's in in side note he's super fun to work with <laughs> in the or and i think that stems partly his father is a family physician and his mother is a crna who retired oh, after really? like 40-some-odd years, so he, no he also grew up in a health care family, just like Abby, <laughs> so who knows. Uh, so what you were telling me before we hit record, Dr. Hine, <laughs> that an interesting story where you gave a speech in high school Yes. on resilience. Yes. What what was that, and then 24 years later, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here um, you are as the director of the Provider Wellness Program, yeah. and you gave a speech on resilience to... Our residents, the emergency the, the incoming class of residents. Yeah. So what, what was the speech in, in high school? When, when was that?
1: Um, so that was on June 14th of 1993, which is apparently the day I graduated from high school. Uh-oh. I know this You're letting w- it out. <laughs> I know this because my mother wrote it on the newspaper article, and our high school had four graduation speakers, and I was one of them. And I remember really laboring over, what am I going to say that has any significance to anybody in this room? I am 18 years old. I at least had the um, insight to know I didn't really know that much at that point. Mm. But I looked around and my uncle, um, who lived 0.2 miles away from me on the same shared driveway, um, has cerebral palsy and Mm. pretty significant cognitive um, impairment. And so I had him, he's my father's older brother. We had this incredible relationship with our uncle Ken growing up all through our childhood. And we used to play baseball with him, and he, it, my um, father grew up on a dairy farm, and there was no sort of consideration for the fact that Ken had, Ken had physical and cognitive impairment. He still did chores, and he still milked the cows, and, right. you know, we won't say this nationally, but we might, that he drove vehicles, right. <laughs> he was very high-functioning. And I remember thinking, what a great example of resilience at the time. Yeah, so no, I think I'll talk about that. Um, in my graduation speech. And so I talked about how um, in our futures we would probably all face different challenges or tests that would really test our resilience and, and these times of adversity might reveal something about who we are. Um, and that I had learned a lot from watching the life my uncle was living, given the limitations that he had sort of been burdened with, if you will. You know? Right, right. He never saw it as a burden. You know, he was the happiest man, he still is. He uh, now lives in a local nursing facility and one of my partners just had the uh, chance to take care of him when he came in because his feeding tube was plugged. And he said, I came in like two hours later to work and he said, yeah. oh, you just missed your uncle, he was here. He said, I went in that room and he gave me the biggest smile. He's like, it made me feel so good. I've worked so many days in a row, and he was really kind of feeling down. And then he took care of Ken, and this huge grin that was on his face when he walked into the room. Oh, that's awesome. And the fact that he was dressed head to toe in Red Sox paraphernalia, you know, (laughs) also helps. helps. right, yeah. (laughs) So I talked about that, Um, and that was 24 years ago. Wow. Yeah.
0: So fast forward from, from the talk on resilience in high school to your talk at the residence. What was it like to think back on what that means? The 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 idea of resilience and what what got you interested in provider wellness? I mean, you mm-hmm. you're talking about resilience as a mm-hmm. graduating high school senior. Mm-hmm. You become yeah. an emergency medicine physician, and uh, this you know you're now the director of the provider wellness program, mm-hmm. and you're giving talks on resilience to emergency medicine yeah. residents. So what? Yeah. How, how did that continue as a theme for you throughout your career in medicine?
1: Well. I remember not even really knowing what burnout was but I chose emergency medicine because it felt exactly right and I've been practicing emergency medicine for 16 years now including residency and I do love it but the concept of burnout is you know absolutely on the front of our minds um, in a specialty like that and I um, I think I came to the, my current, Place professionally through a combination of good fortune and misfortune. Um, I like pretty much everyone else, you know, have a personal story. And um, five years ago, I experienced a very unanticipated and sudden loss um, that really kind of completely caught me off guard and and off kilter. And it affected myself and my whole family and my children. And um, I received support from my colleagues and friends here at Maine Medical Center as well as from my family and friends my personal friends that was like nothing I had ever Mm. experienced Um, and I really think that's probably why I'm still practicing medicine today they created a space without knowing any details without knowing what was going on I had six weeks off from work Mm. to kind of pull things together I didn't ask for that I wasn't even thinking about time off from work but I had colleagues who said, geez, something's going on that's really serious and and uh, we should support her. And I don't know that that happens everywhere, you right. know? And so I had, I think, you know, the good fortune a year later, completely unrelated, I was asked to join this work group that was looking at establishing a peer support program. And I always wondered if there was some connection there. Did somebody say something, you know? But it it wasn't, it was just that, you know, there was a group of individuals from Maine Medical Center who were interested and passionate about this, and they identified something about me that they thought would add to their work group and asked yeah. me to join, but they didn't know any of that kind of personal side of my story. That's so I true. feel like it was, you know, good and bad luck that all kind of came together and brought me to this.
0: Wow, wow.
1: And the interesting thing Is um, So I joined the Provider Health and Resiliency Committee and the work group that was looking at establishing the peer support program and then decided to throw my name in the bucket for becoming the director of the peer support program and and was ultimately selected for that position. And I think that it has professionally been probably the most satisfying experience of my career to be involved in this. Um, where we're sitting right now is where my mother came for her prenatal care, like in this building. In, in, this, bu- so in this, this building. So this, so we're, we're in the
0: emergency <laughs> services administration building yes. across the street from the hospital right. in Portland, Maine. Right. But this yeah. was a prenatal care yeah,
1: this facility? was So this was her OB's office. Oh, wow. And I was born at Maine Medical Center.
0: Wow.
1: My OB rotation as a intern. Um, the attending was the physician who had delivered me. And you can imagine his both pleasure and displeasure when I informed him of that on our first day. So I have a long history with Maine Med and the opportunity to leave some sort of positive imprint in this place is really an honor. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's I come to it through having been through it and also understanding what how important vitally important support is and just wanting to create that you know right
0: that's awesome yeah let's talk about the specifics we'll dig down a little bit what does it mean to be a, a well provider i mean mm-hmm. what, what is wellness mm-hmm. in terms of being mm-hmm. a healthcare care provider
1: it's it's a complicated question john i i struggle with this and everything i read adds another layer to it Um, I think there's, you can look at it in the context of individual factors, but no matter how much you work on your individual wellness, if you are operating within an organization or a professional climate that doesn't support that, you can only, you know, achieve so much before there's going to be an inflection point. And so, um, individually, I think. Things that have been tried and true and studied in the literature and borne out to be associated with wellness are having a sense of autonomy um, and a sense of social connections um, and a sense of your values um, that are aligned with your practice environment. Yeah. All of those things are really important for an individual um, as well as a sense of meaning um, and purpose. And if you look at the factors that contribute to burnout, they are kind of the flip side of that. Not that wellness and burnout are absolutely opposite ends of the spectrum. It's not a direct linear path from one to another. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, there are absolutely factors like that that contribute to wellness on an individual level. The other thing is being able to balance and create space for the other aspects of your life. So, Mm -hmm. um, there was an interesting study that looked at how much time you need professionally, how much of your professional time needs to be spent doing things that you love versus all the other stuff that you have to do. Right, And it's not that much. It's like 20% of your time needs to be spent on things that bring you joy and kind of fill up your well. That, the other 80%- That's in your, in your
0: professional, like in your professional work, like, like your 40, yeah. your 40 yeah. 50, 60 hour right. work week.
1: 20% of that. And that can be protective against burnout if you can find that 20%. So when I'm talking with individuals, I tell them, yeah, there are the stressors of the electronic records and the workload and the workday structure and the support and all of the things that go into it, um, the things that create inefficiencies. But if you can just find that joy and purpose each, you know, in some place within that, um, you're probably doing okay. Then there's all the personal stuff, you know. Um, we have longer work hours than the average um, population does. Yeah. Um, the emotional interactions of which we take part and which can be so fulfilling can also be very draining. Um, and so creating a space for yourself as an individual personally, and for your family and friends, and the things that are important to you outside of work is also associated with wellness.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You. You mentioned briefly this concept that well-being is not on a continuum from one end to the other, Mm -hmm. and the other being burnout. And one of the articles that you sent me that framed our conversation today, which we'll put on the show notes uh, Mm -hmm. for the podcast on the website, it said that well-being is more than the absence of illness, Mm -hmm. and disease and burnout prevention Mm -hmm. is a different strategy than well-being promotion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Solving burnout is one realm of individual and organizational focus, and promoting wellness is is another.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And that's where it's not fair to place wellness on a single individual, because organizations also need to promote wellness. So a lot of individual things are how to protect yourself from burnout, how to build your own resiliency, but you, the organization needs to support that um, openly. Um,
0: so how do they do that? And, and so whether it's the hospital, good question. whether it's the medical school yeah. Yeah. or the private practice?
1: Well, there's a lot of different things and I was actually just looking at some of this this morning and I was reminded, I had briefly forgot, but of the fact that Stanford just created the first ever chief wellness officer position in an ap- academic medical center Very in the interesting. US. Very interesting, wow. Yeah, pretty cool. And Tate Shaunefeldt, who has published extensively in this area and is really well known in the um, realm of well wellness, um, has been uh, selected as their first chief wellness officer. Oh, cool! So, there are things like that, just making a statement where you're going mm. to have a chief wellness officer. Okay. What does that mean? You know, well, he's been doing a ton of stuff. Um, he had been at the Mayo Clinic in um, Rochester, Minnesota, before that. And, and the things that he did focused on organizational um, interventions, interventions for leaders and systems, as opposed to just individual stuff. Yeah. And I think I really uh, kind of identify with that approach, that the organization needs to do things that will create a foundation of wellness. Um, and there's a lot built up in that. There was an article, I think, that uh, the organizational framework um, by uh-huh. Swenson and Schoenfeld yeah. um, that was in the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety and that was just published this year um, that kind of had six recommendations right. for organizations, what they can do. Um, and I just to briefly go through those, um, the first one was to design organizational systems that address human needs, which I think is, is these things seem obvious, but they're not always the way our systems are designed. And there's a great quote by, I'm not sure who, but... You know, your system delivers the results that it was designed to give,
0: basically. That is interesting. You know?
1: And so you, it,
0: You're not going to get something different than the, the design. system that you designed. Right. It should go without saying, so if you're having problems right. with provider right. wellness, there's there's something broken yes, in the way that you've designed your system.
1: Absolutely. And
0: we're having problems with provider wellness. We
1: are. And we, I, we're going to get into that, because I have so much to say on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, in, a, in a minute, we will get into that. Um, the other is to develop leaders who have a participatory style so who ask for import input again what are some of the factors that lead to provider burnout loss of autonomy a sense of no control right nobody goes into medicine because they're kind of on the meek mellow side of the spectrum you know people go into medicine love hearing hearing their opinion hearing others opinions love debating things love thinking about stuff, they love being involved. Right, That's, you know, that's what we thrive on. And it does bring purpose to, to our day to know that we had a positive impact on someone, mm. you know? That was one of the things that struck me about our first brown bag was that everybody in the room went into medicine because they wanted to help people. <laughs> so let's design a system where we help people, including ourselves. Right. Um, so the third is to build social community, which I think, again, when you think about the connections um, and the social interactions that are so important for us as humans. um, We've lost some of those in Mm. our current medical system. There's a lot published about operating in silos and not knowing the other members of your medical team, of your organization, of your department, not really knowing them outside of your little area of expertise. Everybody has a story, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting to know those.
0: It is, I think when you can peel back the layers a little bit, and it goes back, we were talking about resuscitation, in, in that you know, you can know the algorithms for managing a patient, mm-hmm. but it's still a, a human performance endeavor. It's one of the things I enjoyed so much about working in the ICU, is you've kinda got your little tribe that yeah. you do, you run codes with, you yeah. do just patient care with, mm-hmm. but you, you develop this sense of community mm-hmm. in your work group, and I think when you transition into uh, being a physician, being an advanced practice provider, you do end up working more in a solo practice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in some ways, even though you're in an emergency department, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. other physicians there, you're in an OR, there's yeah. you know 40 CRNAs showing up to run cases that day. Yeah. You don't really have that space to build that professional community and mm-hmm. offer that just um, very organic peer support mm-hmm. in talking about difficult moments, crazy cases, absolutely. whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I experienced that yesterday. My colleague and I each had a patient with a rash and we wanted, each one of us wanted the other one to look at the rash and give us an immediate second opinion and we did and I walked away from it and the patient, my patient, was very thankful. He said, this is pretty cool, you can get a second opinion that quickly? Right. Yeah, you could have a third and a fourth, too. There's more people around the corner. Um, But it does kind of promote that sense of we're in this together. Right. And and learning, you know, from each other. So the fourth, I I hate to look at the empty side of the glass, but it is important. Removing sources of frustration and inefficiencies. Yeah. Um, And I think we've all experienced that where you just feel like, get anything done because there's so many barriers in your way and that is like a expedited path to burnout (laughs) if you have to experience that too frequently you know so for an organization to focus on that and you don't feel like you're sort of the lone wolf in the crowd who nobody else is experiencing that or kind of uh paying any heed to it the fifth and sixth uh reduce preventable patient harm and support second victims i want to spend a minute talking about second victim syndrome. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, It's a pretty uh, significant concept um, in the realm of provider well-being and was first promoted by Albert Wu from Johns Hopkins University who looked at the impact of adverse patient events and and patient harm on the providers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we spend so much time as providers looking at the impact on the patient and the families and their friends, as we absolutely should, that I think sometimes we forget that we have any impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be a expected event that's difficult. Um, or an unanticipated event, where maybe you have all these feelings jumbled up of responsibility. Did you make an incorrect decision? Did, did you think of everything? Was your differential as broad as it should have been? Whatever it is, but even in situations where you know there's going to be an adverse outcome, those still have an impact on us. And I think a lot of times in our medical training, we're kind of taught to minimize that, right? not talk about it. Um, and it will come back up, you know. because yeah, you
0: 'cause you're beings. you're always just supposed to have it together. Right. You're the healthcare provider. Right. You're right. supposed to be the calm in the storm. Right. The person who can handle the chaos. Right. But those storms also batter your shingles yeah. in a way.
1: Yeah. I, I think I shared this during uh the lecture at the med exec I was gonna bring it up. It's just yeah. the story about
0: the patient med with, student in the Oh no, ER? that's a different one. No, but point, we should but talk, yeah, about yeah, okay, talk about that All right.
1: one. too. But this is um a patient that I had taken care of years ago um, I don't know if I was a resident or maybe an early attending and had uh, been run over by a train and both his legs had been traumatically amputated and so EMS brought him in brought his legs in with yeah. him and we cared for him and resuscitated him and and my experience with him ended when he went to the OR yeah and that was kind of the end of my experience with him and i didn't i didn't really talk about that with anybody or think that i should talk about that with anybody Mm -hmm. and then in 2013 i ran the boston marathon and was there um had just left um when the bombs uh exploded and i found myself in this kind of know wacky reality of trying to get out of boston without going through any tunnels because going through a tunnel seemed like a bad idea and we didn't know what was going Mm. on but we were assuming that this may be a terrorist event and and so i was supposed to be navigating my friend was driving and it's impossible to leave boston without going through a tunnel when you're headed north and all i could think about was people without limbs Mm. um and i had had this wonderful woman who was a volunteer in the medical tent who had walked with me for like 45 minutes after the marathon because I had some cramping in my legs and she helped me change my shoes and she helped mm. me change my clothes and she was absolutely lovely and I d- didn't even know her name and we had right. just parted ways when this all happened and I wondered how is she doing how is she doing seeing all this wow and I started to have all these flashbacks to that patient from years before yeah. who came in without his legs and I thought why think About that, right now, I need to think about how to get out of Boston and like where yeah, we're going, yeah. But it was just coming back up, you know, right, because it was something that we hadn't dealt with.
0: That's interesting, yeah. And and you hadn't dealt with that as something that you had maybe buried mm-hmm. as an emergency medicine physician, mm-hmm. yet you're also concerned about these people that don't see those kinds of things on a right. regular basis, right? And yes, the, and the trauma that yes, we had those a, care providers could experience.
1: I had another experience like that with a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who's a very good friend, um, Dr. Casey McVeigh, who is the Associate Emergency Medicine uh, Residency Director. And um, we, she was a few years behind me in training. We both trained at Maine Med. So I was an attending when she was a resident. And we had a, a child come into the trauma room who had been in the woods with, um, I think his grandfather and had a tree fall on him and had mm. a really devastating head injury, and we were resuscitating him. And and his he was the same age as uh, Casey's son at the time. And yeah. and afterwards we left the room and I said, you know, let's take a minute to talk about this. And she mentioned how she couldn't stop looking at his hands because his hands were the same size as her mm. son's hands, and that was what she was thinking about while, you know, we were doing the resuscitation, and it was just this image to her, you know, because he wasn't moving or anything, and and just how stark a contrast that is to what you go home to that night, you know? And so where do you put that when you go home? (laughs) Right. You know? And if you have too many of those experiences that build up over time without talking about them or without, you know, basically admitting that we're not invulnerable, that um, it can it can take a toll on providers
0: And I think that's the interesting side of this conversation, and I've often wondered about you know there's an expectation and there there's a perhaps proficiency of developing resilience as a healthcare provider to these episodes. Mm-hmm. There is a bit of a this is what you do mm-hmm. you take care of people mm-hmm. um, and you have. Not only the knowledge in terms of medicine, but also, uh, you know, the skills and compassion and caring and all that kind of stuff that will help manage that situation. And you're supposed to leave one patient go on to the next, leave one patient go on to the next, and that's just your job. And it's a unique job. It's Mm -hmm. a unique experience Mm -hmm. that other folks, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps in the community, don't really have. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered about, there may not be any particular crushing blow or devastating case, yeah. you may go your whole career without having an error that results in patient harm mm-hmm. or a code and someone dies in mm-hmm. your hands, mm-hmm. but the chronic exposure to disease, mm-hmm. to uh, harm, to trauma, mm-hmm. to death perhaps, mm-hmm. and and how does that mm-hmm. weigh on providers and how do you provide self-care, how do you maintain resilience along a career, how do you still end up like uh, Dr. D'Angelo right. at the end of right. a career of right. you know, 30 years of doing neurotrauma surgery mm-hmm. and still have this buoyant, affable mm-hmm. personality?
1: I think that's the hardest question of all, honestly. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I, when you look at burnout, um, and you think there's three components of burnout, right? There's depersonalization, there's emotional exhaustion, there's a sense of low personal accomplishment. None of those things are things that we strive for as individuals, right? Um, But it's easy to dip into that when you have these chronic exposures. And that's actually sometimes the harder stuff for us to figure out as an organization. Mm -hmm. How do we support that? Um, I think at times, everybody's going to dip into that. And if you have organizational opportunities in place, if you have a sense that the that the people you're working with, the, the hospital or the department that you work for, the practice group that you work for cares, it's gonna pull you back out of that, right? along with your individual factors that you can absolutely work on. So, I mean, your own resilience is, um, is based on internal attributes, external attributes, and your ability to build those skills.
0: Which is an important, important part say for the students out there for the med Mm -hmm. students for the residents to to throw out there the idea that resilience is not something that you show up to the game with not everyone gives uh a speech in their high school graduation (laughs) on resilience these are not people who do
1: don't know what they're
0: talking about (laughs) sure but these are not concepts that everyone has spent a lot of time thinking about but it is it is a skill set that can be developed over time
1: absolutely and i'm looking okay i just found it so there's a definition of resilience that I absolutely love that resonates with me on such a level. And I think it's because it is basically resilience through medical training. That's how I think of it. Yeah. But it's the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compressive forces. Like, if that's not medical training, I don't know what it is. All right.
0: Read that <laughs> one more time
1: the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compressive forces. Yes, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And so that's kind of what you're talking about when you talk about this chronic exposure. Right. And and what do you do to shore yourself up? So we've talked a lot about how organizations and, and nationally our health system bears responsibility. Right. But we as individuals do too. And like anything else, if we dedicate all our time to work and all of our time to worry and stress about work, then other things that are protective are going to fall off the radar screen, mm. like sleep and exercise right. and self-awareness and interactions with our family and friends. We sometimes carry guilt with us about making space for those things because there's always more work to be done. Right. And not understanding that those are the things that will probably get us through the tough times. That is interesting. To the point of Dr. D'Angelo, who is here, you know, giving a brown bag lunch series and inspiring others through a phone call. Right,
0: right. (laughs) We'll have to let him know to listen to this podcast. Yeah. You'll be so impressed at how often he's mentioned. (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. Yeah. So, what you just said, it is something that is—it's very interesting about the the taking care of yourself, for the things um, yeah. that you, you get so focused on work, mm-hmm. and not just professionally once you're you know the stamped and approved provider, but as a as a student, as a mm-hmm. as a resident, you're so consumed with, I've just got to get through this mm-hmm. work week, that mm-hmm. it it's very easy to drop off exercise, mm-hmm. nutrition, sleep, those kind of things. Absolutely. I try to encourage anesthesia students to think about their journey through school, which is that slow, compressive force that you just have to go through, it can be overwhelming. Like an athlete might think about training for some sort of big event, Mm -hmm. the Boston Marathon or something Mm -hmm. like that, that it really, it's not just about doing the thing that will help you accomplish the goal, it's about doing all the other stuff that will help you accomplish the goal. So it's not just about, you know, being well prepared for clinicals and reading all Mm -hmm. the books and and staying up late and studying, but you've got to train. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're a human being going through this experience. You need sleep. You need good food. Mm -hmm. You need exercise. There's a a yin and a yang. There's a balance to all of this. And if you're not in the best state of health Mm -hmm. overall, you're not gonna perform very well in the thing that you're super passionate about, right, which is excelling right. in med school, or excelling in anesthesia school, or excelling right. as a provider.
1: Right. Gotta take
0: care of the whole person.
1: So I had an experience with that where I was probably a year out of residency and I was working a ton and I had three small children. And I called my former residency director and said, you know, I think it's been great but i'm i'm pretty much done i'm ready to retire like this has been a lovely year a year out of residency let's wrap it up who really wants more of this and his first question to me was when was the last time you went for a run and i Mm. thought did you just not hear all the things i told you i have to do on a daily basis and now you're telling me i need to go running but he knew me very well, and he knew that running is an integral part of my life, and that if I wasn't running, there was probably something severely out of balance. That's interesting. Yeah. So, for for me, that was the light bulb moment, mm. it was literally the light bulb moment. And now, as Abby can attest to, <laughs> I run. I'm very similar to Forrest Gump, I run a lot, and it's absolutely a survival mechanism. And, I make time for running every single day, and then I make time for all the other things that need to come. Right. I remember that I was trying to warm up after a particularly cold run a couple winters ago, and Abby came down and found me holding my hands in the oven, and I had turned the oven on high. They were like, <laughs> I, I struggle with rainouts and they were really cold. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so cold. And she she said, why did you go running? And I'm like, because I had to. And she's like, uh, no, you didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Technically, today, I did not have to go running, but in general, I need to do that to be right. well.
0: Right, right. And I think that's an interesting marker is, is <laughs> what are the things in your life that if you're not doing, yeah. then that's a problem? Yeah. And because those are markers of health.
1: Without you realizing it. And right. And it takes somebody, that's where pure support comes in. It takes somebody right. who knows you or who can help you identify those things. You know yourself, but sometimes you need to hear yourself say something before it really rises to your consciousness. Right.
0: Yeah. Let's talk briefly about the competitive nature of healthcare, which oh, I think boy. is super interesting. Yeah. There's this drive for performance mm-hmm. that can be unhealthy at times mm-hmm. to where mm-hmm. it's about how much have you published? How mm-hmm. much have you written? Mm-hmm. How many committees can you mm-hmm. excel and perform on? Mm-hmm. What's that about? I mean, how do yeah. you how do you pace yourself? Yeah. Uh, these are things that you can be rightly very passionate about. Yeah. How do you pace yourself? How do you say no to some things? How do you say hmm. no to some things that some people maybe even derive a sense of identity from? Yeah. How do you find that balance? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I don't know. I think I still struggle with that, and <clears throat> I'd like to meet somebody who has the right answer. I, you, you said how do you say no to things. My husband just printed out this article on habits of highly effective people, and had our kids all say that they would read it and like initialize it, that they had read it. And one of the first things was say no to things, (laughs) which seems counterintuitive, right? But in order to create space for all the things that are important to you, you do have to say no to some things. And and there are so many interesting opportunities in medicine. I I mean, we could go on and on and on about how great it is, right? But it can also kind of eat you alive if you don't, any space right Um, and so ultimately I think it is about time management Mm -hmm. and being involved in the things that you really do derive passion from that are going to bring joy to you so is that your clinical interactions with your patients is that some research project? Is that teaching at the bedside? Making sure that you have those things, um, and making sure that you know what you would do outside of that, you know? Mm-hmm. What what would you do with your time when you're not working professionally? And do you have just as much joy outside? And if you don't, like, start looking for opportunities for that. Mm-hmm. You.
0: It was interesting uh, to bring up Dr. DeAngelo again in his talk. He said, um, one of the biggest contributors that he found, uh, or in his opinion, of uh, what contributes to burnout in senior physicians was the work life balance over a career and crushing call schedules, mm-hmm. um, having to be available all the time, mm-hmm. having limited time for vacations and weekends and mm-hmm. nights and just mm-hmm. sleep cycles and those kind of things. Um,
1: I just gave up overnights. Oh, wow. I'm. Am- I'm not that old I'm 42 I personally feel like geez I should have been able to tolerate that for a lot longer um, but the problem was there's so many interesting things going on outside of work that I never wanted to sleep even if I was working an overnight mm. and that pattern just didn't change over the last few years and I found myself falling asleep on the way home from work and almost qua wow. mailboxes Wow and, and I had to admit like this isn't really a healthy pattern yeah and you know there's a bit of a kind of bravado that goes with working overnights as an emergency physician and lots of great interesting stuff comes in on overnights. But for myself, I had to give up overnights and it's been at least six months now and it's been wonderful. How's it feel? It's awesome. I have <laughs> no second guessing on that one. And so, you know, I, I understand what, what uh, as, as you talk about, there will be different points in your career where you need different things. That's maybe a, later on i'll start working overnights again. yeah that, i think Even that's an on. important
0: thing to say that there's seasons
1: yeah absolutely you know and just trying to be mindful um ronald epstein has published this wonderful book called attending um and he's also published a lot in the medical literature on mindfulness in medicine and humanity and and it really is about kind of listening to your internal dialogue in response to all of the interactions that we have. And we we have the most incredible opportunities to connect with other human beings, and it's really a privilege, but there's a cost that comes with that, and we just have to be aware of it, you know? Hmm. Um, and and help others, particularly in the training process, understand that it's normal to be affected by the things we see. You know? Right, yeah. Dr. Ostrander spoke during her, um, Uh, Brown Bag series on how um, it would have been helpful for her to know that some of the feelings that she experienced in different areas of patient care were going to get better (laughs) from somebody who had been through it, you know? Yeah. So.
0: That is interesting. Yeah. So another thing that Dr. D'Angelo had mentioned from his talk was this idea of his social network are the people that he works with. And so, so what do you do yeah. whenever you retire and you're suddenly not in that hospital? You're not, you're not rubbing elbows with people that you've worked with for the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So maintaining relationships and friendships outside of work can be supportive, Absolutely. especially as you yeah. move towards retirement.
1: And, you know, you can have, your, if that's where your social network is, just developing interest with those people outside of work. We have right. Main Med has bike groups of, you know, providers who bike together for 40 miles on a weekend or on a morning before they come to work. And it'll be, you know, a group of cardiologists and emergency medicine docs and all these people who then are going to talk to each other later during the day and they're going to have had that experience that sort of binds them. So, you know, in that sense, it's creating space for these social interactions.
0: Right. Right.
1: Maybe with folks that you have a lot in common with. Right. So, you know, I feel like the last piece is the idea of nationally, like why why should we care about provider wellness on a national level? Seems like an important down. question. Yeah, it filters yeah. down to an individual level too. But you know, there is a significant amount of literature that supports um, the concept that patients who are treated by providers who are burnt out have worse outcomes.
0: Mm, that's interesting.
1: They, they do worse. If you look at the primary care world, people with chronic illness like diabetes or COPD are less likely to follow their provider's recommendations when they're treated by burnt out providers. Um, they have worse measurable outcomes. Their satisfaction is decreased. Um, patients who have operations by surgeons who are burnt out mm-hmm. experience more um, surgical errors. And complications and this is just all you know published evidence out there um, it's also available that um, medical students who have better well-being as measured on different um, psychological um, scales have higher rates of empathy um, yeah and ability to connect with their patients and residents um, there was a study in a group of internal medicine residents that looked at this and the residents who were deemed to be um, to have higher levels of wellness ha- also had higher levels of empathetic interactions with their patients. That's a dream. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot there. But this is absolutely a public health issue.
0: It, and it was interesting. Some of the articles it talked about the potential stigma around provider well-being, and, and the mm. public would say, "Well, you know, why do physicians and right. well-paid healthcare providers absolutely. need to focus on self-care? Mm-hmm. You know, aren't aren't they privileged?" Mm. In their careers but to turn the tables around to say well if you've got someone who is burnt out they may not actually provide the best medical care for you
1: absolutely and the quality of health care that's provided that's that is the answer to that question and the answer is also yes we are privileged to work in this profession um, and we've worked really hard to get to that point too and and there's Price that comes along with that, obviously right. not a monetary price that that we have to pay attention to, in, in order to really be able to offer the public a fully functional workforce. Yeah. You know? And then we haven't really talked about it, but so there's a, it's kind of a three pronged approach. There's a, there's a cost for if, if providers are burnt out. There's a cost to organizations. There's a cost to the providers themselves. There's a cost to the public as well, which we talked about. But the the cost of the provider themselves is we know from looking at this that providers who are burnt out have higher rates of depression Mm -hmm. and suicidal ideation. And if you look at the statistics for physicians, specifically 300 to 400 physicians each year in the United States commit suicide. That's unbelievable. Yeah, essentially two medical school classes of physicians each year who do this.
0: Two medical school classes a year commit suicide.
1: Yes, yes. And while it's less well-studied in advanced practice providers, um, we do know that the rates of burnout are similar mm-hmm. um, to that of physicians, and burnout has been associated with um, depression and suicidal ideation, as well as substance abuse problems. Right, um, It's not uncommon. Uh, it's 10 to 12% of physicians will develop a substance abuse problem at some point in their life. Um, and there is a significant stigma associated with
0: that. Right, the, the rates are similar uh, in the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists yeah. looking at CRNAs, yeah. 10 to 14% of well, CRNAs and anesthesiologists and residents and students, mm-hmm. about that same number mm-hmm. of people deal with substance abuse, yeah. which is a question I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Not only substance abuse, but suicidal ideation and actions. How do you, mm-hmm. how do we as a community support providers you may be struggling with those thoughts or experiences given the stigma associated with it?
1: Well, there's things we can do as a community and at a statewide level, and, and then things we can do nationally. And they're, they're related, but you know, as a community, we can have programs that, that are an expectation of a medical center, um, of an organization that we will focus on wellness. And we will say, this is part of our culture. We have a culture of wellness, and we actually believe it. And we put resources behind it, Mm -hmm. financial resources. Um, And if somebody walks into an organization, and that's one of the first things they hear during an onboarding process, and they have somebody reach out to them, and they have the opportunity to interact and meet people from different disciplines, that sets a a bar of how we treat each other. So in times of need, people can reach out and ask. Um, There are... In many states there are medical health professional mm-hmm. um, programs that are confidential programs. Uh, here in the state of Maine we have one um, and it's, it's not the um, substance abuse rehab program if you will. It's more of a program that is there to support and provide information on resources right. as well as monitor recovery because um, that is an important piece of it as well, but it is confidential. And we need to highlight those um, resources right. for, for people who are struggling. We need to circulate things about providers killing themselves. We need to actually talk about it and take it right. out from right. under the rug and talk about the fact that a lot of medical professionals commit suicide. Right, um, And to understand, try to drill down on why that is and what we can do um, to reduce that number. You know? right. There's an excellent piece um, in New England Journal of Medicine um, from March of this year by Adam Hill, who's a pediatrician. I believe he's a critical care specialist. Mm -hmm. And he published a piece on his own recovery from substance abuse. And he talked about the things that he's learning in recovery and and some of the different things that prevented him from asking for help. And he got to the point where he was sitting in a car ready to take his own life. Mm. from struggling with his alcoholism and not knowing how to ask for help, which also leads into the national aspect of we need less punitive um, actions for providers when they ask for help.
0: It's very interesting. So is he still practicing?
1: Yes. So,
0: so that's one of the, in, in reading about this talk, that's one of the big fears is mm-hmm. loss of license, loss mm-hmm. of practice. If I divulge that yeah. I'm struggling with uh, diversion, substance abuse, whether that's legally purchased alcohol or illicit drug use, then I may lose everything that I've worked for. So So I'm just going to have to, to to... you
1: know,
0: right, right. And it was fascinating. I came across Mm -hmm. um, a TED talk uh, that I finally watched just this morning that I'll I'll link to in the show notes, but it's by Johan Hare, who talked about everything you think about addiction is wrong is the title of his TED talk his synopsis was that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm -hmm. And so he referred to an interesting study from the 60s in which they had rats that were in isolated in cages. They had options between a water bottle Mm -hmm. or a water bottle laced with heroin. Mm -hmm. And the rats, of course, chose the Mm -hmm. water bottle laced with heroin. Mm -hmm. There's a researcher, Bruce Alexander, who found that troubling said, well, rats don't normally live in isolated cages. Maybe mm-hmm. if we change their environment, they would respond differently to the option of this illicit drug. Mm-hmm. So they created what he called the, uh, what did he call it? The rat park. So it was a nice little rat village, and they had uh, male and female rats, and they could have sex, <laughs> and they could interact. Talk and about they, connections. Yeah, they could be social. They, they had games and balls and tunnels and exercise wheels. They had Everything a rat could potentially mm-hmm. uh, desire, I mm-hmm. don't know, and they had water and water laced with heroin. And you said in, in those rat populations, the the use of the heroin laced water, uh, in in the addictive uh, element of the use dramatically, I mean, was almost non-existent because rats that. were interacting with yeah. their communities, and yeah. so. Uh, in the TED talk, he goes on to talk about not only how that influences prevention around substance abuse. That mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the problem of how addictive the substances are, but there's a deeper issue. There's a lack of connection. Mm-hmm. Why why do you turn towards alcohol? Why do you turn towards illicit drug use or gambling or other addictive mm-hmm. properties? It's this idea that there's an imbalance in your life. Mm-hmm. That there's a lack of meaning. There's mm-hmm. a lack of connection. You mentioned communities and Mm -hmm. social connection and all of those things are part of wellness Mm -hmm. they're also part of preventing Yeah, yeah, they're also part of unwellness preventing burnout preventing addiction
1: right right wow even even in rats rats i mean yeah yeah that's super fascinating that is very interesting and he also
0: mentioned in this talk the the way that we support people who have struggled with substance abuse and addiction needing to shift that culturally in the united states from punitive Mm -hmm. Where people lose their medical license, mm-hmm. where people gain a felony offense and they can't be part of the, um, the legal mm-hmm. uh, economy, right. where people right. are literally imprisoned away. But in, in looking, trying to find ways to reintegrate and reconnect people to healthy communities and places where they can derive meaning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was part of Dr. Hill's, um, his really, his lessons learned was about support and reducing the stereotype that goes along with an individual with a substance abuse disorder, uh, the stigma associated mm-hmm. with that and it's it's just um, when you tie in somebody's entire professional life and opportunity with a personal issue it can be too much for somebody to really figure out how to manage right. Um, if they don't know that there are opportunities, there are options available to them for recovery, right? Without losing everything, right? right? You know. Um, so I know that that the our program exists in other states as well, um, but I think part of this is kind of full circle back to where we started. We started with a peer support program, and mm-hmm. then we realized we needed to paddle upstream and like get ahead of the issue, um, right? And work on other you know, it's vitally important to have our peer support program and then we need a whole complement of other um, kind of system-wide and organizational um, activities and offerings so that people don't find themselves needing the peer support program. The best thing about peer support would be if we did that naturally and we no longer needed a peer support program because it was part of the culture of
0: medicine. Which is interesting because I I feel like the peer support program is a step in the right direction Mm -hmm. Because I've heard the very same thing that you just said mm-hmm. about the professional counseling industry. Mm-hmm. Well, if we just provided that for ourselves and our communities, maybe we wouldn't need these mm-hmm. specialists out there. And the peer support mm-hmm. seems to be a little bit of a layer before that yes. process happens. Yes, not, it's not that, not that right. there's a, I think there's a stigma about mm-hmm. even going for professional counseling mm-hmm. services. Absolutely. That clearly needs to get cleared I, up, but.
1: There's a stigma about going for peer support.
0: I guess the question is, how is peer support different from professional counseling?
1: There is a distinct difference. Joe Shapiro has a great way of saying it. It's emotional first aid. It's that initial layer of we've been there, you know, we can understand because we are in a similar profession or discipline and we've all experienced this. So it's destigmatizing, it's normalizing somebody's reaction. Of course, you should feel pain over this event because mm-hmm. you care deeply about what you do and you care about your patients or if that's an acute stressor you know if it's more of a chronic burnout situation yeah i've been there too you know did you know that over half of medical professionals have experienced this you know mm. And and to make it so that they don't feel like they're the only person sitting in a sea of happy people, right. you know. And everybody else seems to be able to just manage things better, right. you know.
0: And I think that goes back to the competitive piece and the mm-hmm. professionalism piece and the you're just mm-hmm. supposed to have it together piece. And yeah. Yeah. all of this, I think, it the creating of a culture that is uh, promoting of wellness and promoting of peer support, I think could be profoundly helpful for folks to know that it's okay, it's to give ourselves, to give ourselves as a profession permission mm-hmm. to need help, mm-hmm. to not always have it together, yeah. whether that's right. at work or at home or whatever it may be.
1: Mm-hmm. And we have, um, we've made progress with that. I think you know a huge part of it is making it normal that you would expect that you would want peer support, that you would yourself would ask for it. So we have multiple different avenues in which people are referred to us. And in the last three to four months, most of our referrals have come from individuals themselves who are emailing us directly and saying, I would like mm-hmm. to talk to somebody or from colleagues. And I always, when somebody refers uh, a peer to us, I always say, are they aware of this? And if they aren't, please make them aware before we reach out to them. Those are lines of a successful cultural shift, yeah. you know, that people are saying, oh, this is a good thing. Right. Yeah, I want this. This is great that we offer this. So there's a little bit of word of mouth. There's yeah. you know a bit of advertising and marketing it. And what is it that we do? We aren't providing professional counseling. You know, we are providing this emotional first aid, if you will. That's great. And, and how how does that look? And how can that be helpful?
0: That's great. I guess in closing, what would you say, uh, maybe to speak directly to someone who has made it this far on the podcast that mm-hmm. that is still they're still struggling with being overwhelmed, they're struggling with the feelings of burnout, mm-hmm. or maybe even contemplating suicide, or, or way out.
1: Um, I would say don't be afraid to ask for help. That there are programs available. There are people. If there's no program available where you are, there are people right within your own work unit, if you will. That provide this same service to you burnout is a temporary thing it's not a permanent thing mm. burnout is it's like a tide that comes in and goes out and at times you're stuck in high tide and other times you're not and and so it's hard to see that you know in the moment but you can get out of it um and you want to because you're doing the right thing for yourself and for your patients You know, yeah so, that's great yeah
0: anything else that you want to say about broader wellness I don't
1: think so I mean I could talk about this for probably another 12 hours right right <laughs> but I think we've covered a lot of it today. I think
0: so well thank you so much and Abby thank you so much for hanging out with us today do you have any thoughts that after listening to your mom and I talk for so long
1: mm, I just think it's a really important topic do you still want to go into medicine yeah
0: <laughs> Yeah. good good well thank you so much for hanging out and participating I'm really excited about your surgery camp that you went to, and I hope that you go on to more surgery camps. Sometimes they're called residencies, (laughs) yeah. But uh, yeah,
1: considered a camp of sorts. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it was completely a delight to speak with both of you today. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thank you. This was
1: wonderful.